Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red and again by the biggest friend of the show, Temur Azhari. Temur, welcome back from the show. Thanks again for having me here. Yeah, great to have you, Tamor. Uh, this is obviously a very important, a very special episode of the podcast. It's going to be devoted entirely to one story. It's the only story that's happening. It is what happened on Tuesday, this massive explosion that you know took out a huge chunk of Beirut. So uh, first off, everybody here is okay, right? Comparatively, I mean, yeah, there's just nothing really to speak of. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was uh, personally quite lucky. I live on the other side of town, and I, I remember around 6 p.m. on Tuesday, uh, there was this huge shaking. I thought my building was going to fall down. It was in the middle of collapsing, you know, and I was running towards the stairwell with stuff stopped. Luckily, there was minimal damage to my place, but not not so many people got off so easy. Yeah, uh, in my case, I was in... in um... I was very far from Beirut, actually. I was 50 kilometers away from Beirut. And uh, what we heard was just like some loud, not very loud, but like some thunder, right? Two little waves of, of what looked, seemed like it's, you know, very heavy bass from speakers or thunder or whatever. Things that, something that, you know, I'm not very used to in terms of the sound. And there was a big curtain that moved a little bit. And I thought there was something, you know, in the in the valley near the village I was in or something like that, like a little explosion, people blowing up rocks, etc. Yeah, I, I, I thought for sure that the explosion was on my street. Yeah, this seems to be the experience of everyone, actually, I've talked to. Everyone thought that the, exp- that the explosion or the thing that was happening was happening in their neighborhood or where, where they are, uh, where they were at that moment. Yeah, 100%. I mean, for me, it was a little bit different. I was in Brumana, uh, you know, like couple of kilometers outside of Beirut in the mountains or like a few kilometers outside of Beirut. Um, and uh, I just got a text on my phone from from a, my colleague saying that uh, there was a, a fire at Beirut's port and I have a like I can see Beirut's port from my window. I look out and it was like this big plume of smoke. Um, I like immediately turn on my phone camera and start filming, like open the window and about like 10 seconds later, just see this blast and this like huge mushroom cloud chills you know as soon as i saw that it was like i mean like nothing i've ever seen before the closest thing to that is probably uh, like those those old videos of like t- uh, nuclear testing uh, like you know out in the pacific at some some you know at some like eight at yeah. all where, where there's that like big mushroom cloud that comes up and then w- the sort of other staggering thing is that it then took about 30 seconds for the blast wave to hit me and hit us up there and it actually like moved the clouds uh the clouds were sort of undulating in front of me and 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 then these two consecutive blasts in quick succession uh, hit yeah it was uh i mean it was it was really hard to even gauge what was happening uh it looked so massive but it just somehow also couldn't register you know yeah yeah the the worst hit or uh, the worst affected amongst our team here at the podcast uh, is our un- unsung producer susan uh she actually lives the closest out of all of us to the blast over on the east side of beirut susan do you want to tell us really quickly what happened at your place and whether you are, you know, do you have power? Do you have, obviously you have uh, internet, otherwise we wouldn't be able to be uh, recording right now. Basic services, do you have water, stuff like that? Yeah, it was surreal. 
to be honest, we were sitting, my fiancé and I were sitting at our desks, probably in the safest part of the house, as it turns out, based on the damage. And we were talking with friends on WhatsApp, like, there's this fire down at the port, what's going on? We heard the first explosion. He got up, went to our balcony to look out to see what was going on, saw some neighbours from the building across the street doing the same thing, and just instinct, I guess, he heard the noise coming towards us, which was obviously this blast wave that decimated half the city. And he dove back in under his desk, yelled at me to get down, I went down under my desk, and then it just hit us. And I honestly can't actually really remember the moment it hit. I remember the noise just being overwhelming. And then everything, it was like, it just felt like a bomb had gone off in our place. The doors were off the hinges. They'd been ripped apart vertically. So there's like, we have this tiny sliver of like particle board on all of our inner doors. And the rest of the doors just went flying. Most of our windows got broken. Loads of stuff just got tossed about. We found it in really weird places. We had just had a salad that day and we found carrot on the roof. Like everything just went insane. I still can't find my flip-flops right exactly. now. I think they flew out of my house. Because what we think based on the damage is that at first it comes through and then it just sucked out because we found, we saw, we didn't find, we saw some of our stuff like on the street behind us, halfway down the street. So we think it kind of like came through Ooh. first, broke everything and then sucked some stuff out. But yeah, it just happened in an instant. Like this is the thing. It was just very, very quick. We had no idea what was going on. Um, we went into the bathroom because that was like, we figured that was the safest place to be until we knew if something else was going to happen. Just started talking to people, established it was the port, there was this explosion. And after a while, we started just sifting through the rubble, and which is what we did for two days straight, pretty much. We were very lucky that we didn't lose power. We did lose internet for two days. Literally, I'm a five minute walk from the St. George, which got very, very badly damaged to the point where they had to shut down. And I have friends. The who hospital. Live, yeah. The hospital and i have friends who live near that street who have not had power since it happened like they still don't have power so it's very much just depending on where you were at the time like how bad the damage is we're we're lucky in that we have power we have water we just we had to like put cardboard and everything to seal ourselves off from the outside but we're getting there and and as you head closer and closer to the blast site from your apartment you can just see how the damage gets worse and worse you know you go down to jamezi street and there, there are buildings that are are just crumbled now, and and then you go even further, you know, to the port, and the port is just this wasteland of destroyed buildings. Yeah. Uh, so when when I when I uh, when the when the explosion first happened, what I did is uh, I, I went down from Bermana to the port. Uh, I wasn't initially let in by the army, who was were sort of blocking the way in, but then I kind of snuck in when when there was an ambulance going in, as you do. Uh, and uh, headed, uh, basically ran uh, towards the side of the blast inside the port. And honestly, what what you what like what what you see in there is just a, a wasteland. I mean, like the vicinity of the blast, these like tall hangars, like were basically reduced to below one story. They kind of look like those metal sponges that you have in your kitchen. They're just like completely sort of unrecognizable, like cars thrown like three meters high, ships lying on their sides. I saw this captain uh, or this like crew on a ship walking around in his like white uh, uniform holding his briefcase just completely covered in blood. Uh, he looked like stunned uh, by, by what had happened. 
yeah, it was a complete wasteland. And then obviously when you when you go from there into the Manam Khayel Jemeze neighborhoods and, and downtown, the, the destruction is just immense. Uh, you know, to get a sense of how big the blast was, it was initially reported as like four or five different blasts in different parts of the capital. And then, you know, quickly people sort, sort of started to understand that, you know, what had actually happened. And, and you know, you know, a blast that kills kills over 150 people, injures 6,000 is the latest tally. We still have dozens missing and we have 250 to 300,000 people without homes. Yeah. Okay. So what we uh, know happened, and, and I just want to go through this quickly because I think most of our listeners have the basic timeline in, in their minds already. We know that the, uh, the actual explosion, the huge one with uh, the mushroom cloud and everything happened at about 6.08 p.m. local time on Tuesday. And we know that the fire had been burning about half an hour before that. So the fire started somehow, and we don't know exactly if the, we don't know if the fire was in warehouse 12 or somewhere else or, or a nearby warehouse, but close by this fire started. And and it was something, you know, the, the official line is that it was fireworks, right? It was a whole bunch of fireworks going off. And you can see in the camera shots that a lot of people got in the video that a lot of people got, you can see things sort of like exploding. Now, a lot of people have said, this doesn't look like fireworks. There are no colors. There is no bursting or anything. This looks like uh, some sort of ammunition dump or weapons depot or something like that that's going off. We still don't know. Regardless, though, this fire started out either in or close to Warehouse 12 at the port, which Warehouse 12 is where a whole bunch of ammonium nitrate was being stored. Literally 2,750 tons, metric tons of this stuff uh, had just been sitting there since 2013 because of this very convoluted story about this shipment from Georgia to Africa getting you know, stopped in Beirut or having to stop in Beirut because of how bad their uh, the ship was that was transporting this stuff. Anyway, Lebanese authorities had seized that back in 2013, and it's just been sitting at the port ever since, becoming a tick a ticking time bomb. Well, so just just so you get a sense of how long that is, I came to Lebanon six years ago and went through uni and started working in journalism uh, and had my whole career, you know, and finished my degree. And all that time, that ammonium nitrate was sitting there waiting to explode. Uh, it's just, it's, it's sort of really, you know, when you look back at it and you think of all the times you drove past the port, all the time, all the time you spent in Manam Khayel yep. uh, and, and all of the friends you have there and, you know, it's it's really staggering that it was there that long. It's it it feels so uh, you feel so betrayed. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So somehow the fire spread to this, and this thing that has been this ticking time bomb that has been building up for you know six seven years uh, explodes in, in this just absolutely unbelievable, magnificent, uh, insane way, wipes out a huge part of Beirut, and and then that's when just the pandemonium starts, right? Because then all of a sudden you have people who are bloody uh, rushing to the hospital, people who are trapped uh, in certain cases, who have to be found and pulled out and transported to the hospitals. The, the, the hospitals saw just a huge immediate flood of victims coming in. And a lot of people weren't even transported in ambulances or anything of the sort. They were put in pickup trucks and cars. Random people passing by the area were just picking up 
uh, wounded people on their way and taking them to the hospital. It was something that we, you know, the only time I've seen something similar in Lebanon was during footage of huge bombing, uh, huge Israeli bombing or some massacre in the civil war or whatever, something that uh, like of this, of this scale. Uh, it, uh, the scenes, um, I was not there, I was watching uh, this footage on TV and through videos, but the scenes were absolutely, uh, I don't know how to call them, you know, devastating on, uh, on all levels. It was apocalyptic. Yeah, even hospitals were destroyed. I mean, when, when people were taken to the St. George Hospital, they were turned back. Um, and, and it's my understanding that as doctors were treating people, they were also trying to retrieve dead and wounded nurses from the emergency section of the hospital, which collapsed. And, and I think that the number is over 10 nurses and doctors who died in the blast itself. Uh, people were being treated in the parkings. You know, it's, I mean, it, it, it was, it, it felt like war. Uh, and uh, war had been, war had come to the capital and destroyed the capital in a second. You know, the sort of destruction that we probably last saw during the civil war, uh, which took years and years and years to accumulate. Just one second, one moment caused it. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the scenes at the hospitals were, were sort of unbelievable, uh, unbelievable scenes of people, people finding out their relatives are dead uh, and, and, you know, uh, being treated in, in hospitals that themselves are falling apart. Uh, yeah, some, something you, you really can't get out of your head. Yeah, both uh, St. George, uh, Mustafa uh, Room, uh, as well as uh, Mustafa Haddad down the hill were just uh, eviscerated, as I understand it. And, and this... Just as a very quick aside, we were in the middle of a coronavirus like spike and outbreak. Everybody was really concerned about this. Tuesday was uh, the first day after four days of lockdown uh, that was supposed to be semi-open when this blast hit. Just very quickly to let you know what's going on with coronavirus. We had almost 1,500 cases just last week. That is a new record. Uh, there were 17 new deaths. And we now have more than 4,000 active cases, which is way up from the 500 or so that it held at for so long during April and May and June. And th this was starting to become a very real concern for the healthcare system already in Lebanon, right? There were already a lot of people raising the alarm, hey, we don't have the capacity to deal with this new outbreak of coronavirus. We're going to get overwhelmed. And then, bam this happens and 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 all of a sudden the whole coronavirus nobody's thinking about coronavirus it's just all hands on deck the 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 hospital system is overwhelmed because two i mean two of the major hospitals are just you know gone now yeah and then on top of all of this as well uh, all of these homes are unlivable uh, you know i have a couple of friends who are staying with me because their apartment in marmachail got just destroyed it just got wrecked it's it's unlivable there are no windows etc and so you had this huge exodus sort of from from these areas and from the city of people who no longer had a place to live a real home right and and the the stories and and the videos that have come up afterwards you know just uh, the moment of the blast the amount of grief involved with you know over 150 people killed and 6000 injured you know that that basically means that 
hundreds of thousands of people in the capital know someone who was affected directly, either injured or killed. And and then, I mean, I, I you know, when you have like 300,000 300, people displaced, I mean, it's it's a it's a national event in in every way, and just the stories of these people, you know, from a three year old girl uh, Alexandra Najjar who, who who was killed to you know twenty five year old firefighter uh, to to all you know you know old people, mothers, fathers. Uh, the grief is just really, really overwhelming. Uh, it's uh, it's it's really hard to put into words, honestly, uh, to to capture that th- those moments. And and yeah, I, I honestly I don't even know what to say. Uh, yeah, and, and I think you know th- this is the this is part of the thing we haven't had. Nobody's really had time to grieve, right? Because there's just been so far, so much to do. There's been cleanup. There, there are people who are still missing. There's something like 60 people still missing. There is still recovery efforts ongoing right now. You know, th- this is this is not finished. And then, of course, we're, we'll we'll get to it uh, a little bit later. But then there's the 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 protests. You know, the the popular response against the politicians who created the circumstances that allowed this to happen. Right. I I, I don't think anybody's had time to really process what's happened yet. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, I just want to just say one thing here. A lot of my friends, almost everyone who lives in uh, Manum Khayil, Jaitawi, that area of Beirut, uh, they had a very traumatizing experience. And I just want to say, like, no one should ignore or neglect this trauma. This is a very serious, you know, this would have a very serious effect on, on our psychologies on the long term and can manifest in many ways. So I really encourage everyone who went through this sort of experience to to seek help to talk about it to try to you know get it out and deal with it because otherwise it will manifest in other ways especially those who had the experience of thinking or feeling that they might die at that moment that's that's really traumatizing and should be dealt with 100 percent. yeah i completely agree uh yeah so i i mean to sort of bring this back to the politics side of things there there are two big questions i think Number one, who set the original fire? This is something that we don't really know the answer to. Hopefully, an investigation will let us know. We don't know if it was an accident. We don't know if it was some sort of, uh, if there was an intentional setting of something. No idea. This is one of those questions that we will have to sort of wait and see what develops on. But then there's a second question, I think, as well, that is very much at the forefront uh, of everything that's going on right now. And, and that is, why was this bomb sitting at the port? How the fuck did this happen? Yeah, 100%. And there is an investigation, you know, that is supposed to be addressing this now uh, that has all kinds of issues that I've reported on from the beginning. Uh, and basically, it's uh, if, I, if we can get into it just a little bit, it's an investigation that is uh, headed by the prime minister, uh, you know, overseen by the prime minister, uh, a number of other ministers, and the army, state security, and general security. And there have been many, many calls for an international investigation into this matter, just because of the scale of it. Uh, you know, there, there have been nationals of many countries killed. Uh, the, the, the city has been eviscerated. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of resistance by the Lebanese politicians to an international investigation. Uh, how the president, uh, Michel Aoun, today said that an interna- you know, calls for an international investigation uh, aimed to waste time. But the problem is that there is a huge credibility issue in Lebanon. Let's put it straight. Uh, you know, this committee that is overseeing the investigation is headed by a politician. 
uh, includes security forces who answer to po politicians and is using military police uh, to do the investigations, which is obviously part of the army, as well as the judiciary, who we know in Lebanon are highly politicized, uh, have long worked uh, in favor of those in power. Uh, and so there's a huge crisis of trust in, in what is actually going on today. Uh, for various reasons, uh, you know, various security forces are implicated in this. They knew about the presence of this stuff for six years. The army knew, state security yep. knew, port officials knew. No one did anything. Uh, and those same people today are investigating this. Um, and, and I don't even think we need to discuss why uh, people would have some trust issues with that. And so there are calls to either include international experts in the investigations here with the top judges in the land, or to have a full-blown international investigation, be it via a UN special rapporteur or another me mechanism. And, and there are really serious calls for that. And But see, here's something that we run into another issue on. What, what about the legitimacy? You spoke about the legitimacy, legitimacy of domestic investigations, but international investigations, the legitimacy of those is also very highly questionable here in Lebanon amongst the population. And all of a sudden, the STL, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, and their verdict that was supposed to come out, was it yesterday or the day before, that was supposed to come out, but it, they postponed it, all of a sudden actually matters, it seems. Because I, I had sort of written off the STL personally because it just wasn't as important anymore in the politics, right? It, it may be, it's, it's important uh, for what it is, right? in terms of you know legal issues and justice and everything but in terms of politics it really wasn't going to make too big of an impact i didn't think but the problem is is that the stl is very highly politicized uh at least in in the way it's viewed here in lebanon and so if you're on one side of the spectrum you believe that the verdict should definitely be one way and if you are on the other side of the spectrum you believe the verdict should be the other way and if the judges don't rule in your favor, you will consider the tribunal to be illegitimate if you don't already, right? 100%. And so all of a sudden, we're, we're sitting in this place where we're asking, okay, well, are we going to do another inter international investigation? And honestly, I don't see how you, you have the popular legitimacy to really do that, given what the STL has become. I agree. And, and this is a long discussion, but uh, th there is also the point that the STL was an international tribunal, whereas an investigation is kind of different. Uh, you don't have to have the same uh, level of, you know, it, it doesn't have to take as long uh, if you have an investigator, sort of similar to the investigator who investigated Jamal Khashoggi's assassination, uh, which, which took about a year. But there are, so I've spoken to people who said that you could do it in a, in a shorter amount of time as well with, for example, a UN special rapporteur. But yes, there are serious questions about uh, popular, uh, you know, basically a split uh, among Lebanese who, who uh, a section of which, which, as soon as they hear international investigation, they think of the Hariri trial and they feel targeted, um, and another section of Lebanese who feel like it's sort of the uh, you know a way to achieve justice. Uh, but it, you know the STL has uh, in, in in a large part uh, failed to deliver justice just because it took fifteen years. Um, yeah, of, of course. Uh, speaking of the the international response to this, there there was a huge one. You know, multiple countries around the world reached out and you know offered. Obviously, their condolences, uh, but also offers of aid. Um, some of that has uh, been flowing in already, I believe. 
the World Bank has indicated a willingness to uh, reprogram their existing resources. So, you know, money that is supposed to be used for one thing, maybe it could go to another thing. Uh, and we saw a big visit from the French president, Emmanuel Macron, this week. And he promised, uh, first off, can we, can we talk about his visit and yeah. what he did here? Going, actually going out amongst the Lebanese people and speaking to them? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there was definitely, uh, I mean, when Macron arrived, he went and surveyed the damage at the port, and then he walked among, uh, you know, into, into Jemeza and was just mobbed by people. Um, and it was really sort of this chaotic, uh, extremely emotional uh, sort of uh, event uh, where people were basically shouting at Macron to help them. They were shouting, don't help our politicians, things like, you are our only hope. Um, and Macron basically pledged there that he would not help uh, the politicians. He said, I'm here to help you, not them. And uh, basically during his visit, Macron put Lebanese politicians to shame because he went to Jemeze before any of the country's supposed leaders did, uh, be they the prime minister, the president, or the speaker of parliament, uh, or even any ministers uh, in, in the cabinet. Um, well, the justice you know, minister tried to. Tried afterwards, and they didn't let her. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and the education minister also later tried, and they literally sweeped him away. Uh, they, he had a broom in his hand, which they ripped out of his hands, and then they pretended to sweep him away. And, and so, yes, uh, I mean, uh, you know, some people have pointed out this thing of like, you know, France, former colonial power, Macron coming here, the optics of basically this white dude uh, among a sea of like, uh, you know, Arab people being like basically hailed as a savior. And I get that. But I think that uh, my takeaway from Macron's visit is that that aside, and that is a big point, he, you know, his style, uh, his charisma, uh, the, the just uh, sort of a level of, of, you know, politics that he showed uh, goes just, just put the, the people in this country, the leaders in this country to absolute shame. Uh, you know, he, he, he held a meeting with them where he called, called them in like, like school children and basically was telling them off. And, and like, I, I think that if you didn't have this colonial past, uh, you, you would sort of uh, see it as like, I mean, you, you would really, you know, appreciate this uh, from, from someone basically telling Lebanese politicians off um, and, and also uh, really not holding back during his press conference um, in which he basically uh, said that he supports political change. Uh, obviously, it, he says it can't come from abroad, it can't come from France, but he encourages the opposition in Lebanon to unite. And I know that he had constructive criticism uh, during a meeting with civil society and representatives of uh, independent political movements uh, in the country. And, and Macron also pledged to basically circumvent the government in the aid response, uh, which is something a lot of states uh, have said they would do. And, and basically, you know, support education in Lebanon, support schools in the long term, give financial aid to the youth um, and make sure that money doesn't go into corrupt hands. France obviously having organized four donor conferences in the past where over $20 billion were pledged uh, and many allegations that a lot of that money went to waste. Yeah. And uh, today we're, we're recording this on Sunday. He's supposed to be having a some sort of teleconference, uh, uh, another Paris conference, but done online amongst world, world leaders and UN leaders to support Lebanon during this time. Um, so we'll find out probably later today uh, what comes of that. Yeah, but uh, I, I think it's interesting what you mentioned, Tamor, about uh, France, you know, being hard on the government. Because, I mean, the international community has, in general, been pushing 
some austerity nonsense and stuff like that on Lebanon, but saying like, we need to see actual reforms in order to give you money, you know, for Cedra and, and the conferences before that. It, it seems as though the, the, the French government and most of the international community really doesn't have a whole lot of faith, just like the Lebanese people in the state and in the government to effectively act like a state to distribute funds to, to aid people, to help people. And that mirrors what's going on inside the country as well. Uh, amongst the people, there's very little faith that this political class can actually do anything, get, get, can actually rise to the occasion. Uh, and what we've seen so far from the political class really is not encouraging. We've had Prime Minister Diab speak a couple of times. We've had President Aoun speak. We've had Hassan Nasrallah speak as well. The only interesting thing to come out of all of these, I think, is that Diab promised new elections. Yeah, I mean, when Nasrallah spoke, which I, I didn't watch his speech because I was in the streets, uh, nor did I actually watch any politician's speeches because I was in the streets, um, Nasrallah basically said that he didn't know, uh, you know, that Hezbollah knows more about the port of Haifa than they do uh, about the port of Beirut, which I think is sort of a ludicrous uh, statement. Um, and also, Nizar, right. remember you shared a tweet where Nasrallah was basically saying, oh, that hangar number, whatever it is, in, in reference to, the, to where it exploded. So he's obviously trying to very hard to make it seem like, oh, yeah, I, I, I totally know nothing about the port. What port? Which port? Where, where is the port? Um, and, and, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, th th there are... Uh, I think important questions, not to dwell on this too long, but there are important questions as well about uh, Hezbollah's role in this, I think. And as soon as you say something like this, you get attacked by a whole uh, swathe of people. But uh, there are reports uh, of Hezbollah operatives being arrested in various countries with various amounts of ammonium nitrate. And if I'm a paramilitary organization in a state, right, and in, and in one sunny November day, or probably a rainy November day in 2013, uh, almost 3,000 tons of high explosives sail into a port in my country. Uh, I, that paramilitary organization, will probably go, hmm, interesting. And, and I think that there's a huge question there about, well, uh, was, was ammonium nitrate being siphoned off? Uh, was the explosion actually an explosion of 2,750 tons or less? You know, to, to what extent, if we're looking at the interests here of why this was kept here, I think that you can't do that without looking at, well, who can benefit off of high explosives in a country like Lebanon? Yeah, there was, there was actually a really interesting uh, discussion on Twitter between Amal Saad, uh, who is a Lebanese university professor, pro Hezbollah, and Elias Mohanna, uh, some of you know him as Kifa Nabki, the blogger. Amal was basically making the point that a lot of people are pointing the figure at Hezbollah right now, but this relies sort of on considering Hezbollah as this omnipotent, all-powerful force in the background that, you know, whatever they say goes in Lebanon. Uh, and she says that is a misunderstanding. That's an exaggeration first off. But also, she makes, I, I think, a, a pretty good point that if Hezbollah knew about this huge quantity of ammonium nitrate that was sitting there in Warehouse 12 for so many years, surely they would have considered this like a problem strategically for them. Uh, you know, if Israel could blow up half of Beirut just by, you know, setting this stuff off, then that poses a really you know, kind of big problem for Hezbollah. They probably wouldn't have wanted to have that. So from her point of view, they they must not have known. But Elias Mahanna, you know, he, he pointed out, you know, like, no, this was around for so long. So many people knew about it. Sure, you know, surely Hezbollah knew as well. 
Uh, and, and I think that there's a bit of truth, you know, in, in both of those, but I'm not quite sure what happened there. And, 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 and taking it a little bit more largely, I, I think that all of this is probably coming out because whenever anything like this happens, there's a whole lot of people who are very quick to point the finger at Hezbollah as well. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, some people go very far in their, you know, imagination to try to to make Hezbollah look like, you know, it's the evil um, party that's behind everything. But let's let's be really honest here. N- no, I, I think Amal is completely wrong. There is no possibility that Hezbollah doesn't know about the ammonium uh, about the ammonium nitrate. It's just impossible. Hezbollah knows. Yeah, a huge intelligence network in Lebanon. They know a lot of things, including a telecoms network, including like uh, people on the ground and every little in- institution that exists in the country. They don't know that this exists. And Nasrallah has spoken about the same material being there in Haifa's port and how it's so easily uh, this uh, how it's so easily targeted, etc. Like that's absolutely impossible. Okay, the question is not whether Hezbollah knew or not. That's a very naive question to ask, in my opinion. The question is whether Hezbollah wanted it to stay there and for what reason, or it didn't. You know, I'm not sure what what, what you know what opinion what side to be on here because. We really, we don't know enough about this to know, but it's definitely uh, a different question than that Hezbollah know. Oh, of course they do. Yeah, and it's and it's a larger question than that as well, because right now we're singling out Hezbollah as knowing, but clearly the entire political class knew, or or the majority of these, at least at a certain level. And so why did Gibran Basile let this happen? Why did Saad Hariri let this happen? Why did Walid Jumblat let this happen? Hassan Diab, Michel Aoun, they all received information about this ammonium nitrate from security agencies who did reports recently in the last few months. And one of the reports was handed to them a couple of weeks ago, right, around 20 July or something like that, explaining that this is an extremely dangerous material that is being stored in conditions that are not okay, etc. And Hassan Diab didn't come out and say, you know, as your prime minister, I want to protect you. Maybe you should, you know, uh, take some precautions in the coming uh, times or let's do anything possible to move this ammonium nitrate out of the city, uh, uh, you know, as soon as possible, etc. Just, I don't know, like, there should be another solution than leave them in the heart of the of the city. Uh, so Michel Aoun didn't make any statement about it. And yesterday he was trying to say, oh, no, no, I didn't know anything about this. It's not my responsibility. I don't have jurisdiction. I don't have power. For why why the fuck do we call do we, do we call a president the strong president a Rais al Qawi if he can't even make a statement about something that would cause the, the, the death of of hundreds of, of of thousands of people potentially? Thank God maybe it was uh, less than than expected by some experts' uh, its accounts. But anyway, like why are these people so rude in just saying that you know it's just completely escaping responsibility when they knew about this? Right when they were handed reports explaining this to them, when their people that they appointed, you know, Badri Dahir was appointed by FPM people. He's been head of the customs for a long time, and before that, he was head of the department inside the port where the ammonium nitrate was was stored. Why is Jubran Basile saying it's not a question of why it was in the port? It's a question of why it was ignited to escape responsibility. Why did Michel Aoun not commit of it on it? Because it's his guy and he keeps going to Babra every couple of days. It's absolutely like fascinating how rude our political class can be when it comes to like claiming responsibility. And I can't believe that after such an event with such pop, low popular approval to, to for a government that Hassan Diab didn't just go the next 
just literally one hour after the explosion and said, okay, sorry, I failed to protect you. I resigned from my uh, from my uh, role. Or at least uh, some of his ministers that are directly responsible for this. The rudest people I've ever seen are ruling the country, period. Well, the, the public works minister uh, who is in charge of the port nominally uh, told me that he learned about its presence on the 24th of July, which is 10 days uh, or 11 days, uh, 11 days before the explosion happened. Um, and so that that guy still, uh, you know, is in his post. We have seen that some people apparently are fed up. And so today we saw the resignation of Manal Abdus Samad, the information minister who cited, uh, you know, basically respecting the, the, the people who were killed, injured and are missing from the Beirut blast and basically said the government hasn't been able to live up to the aspirations of the Lebanese people, uh, which they which they basically voiced on in, you know on the October protests. Um, there are also reports, you know, we're, we're recording here on on Sunday afternoon, but there are reports that uh, the economy minister and the environment and uh, administrative development minister, uh, so that's two ministers, uh, are going to resign as well. And we've also seen a series of MPs resign. Uh, Marwan Hamed resigned the night of, uh, and then. Uh, Paula Yakubian and the three Katab MPs resigned yesterday, and we have Namet Frim who also resigned today. So that's six MPs who have resigned. And and two of those MPs are MPs for East Beirut: Nadim Jamail of Kataib and Paula Yakubian, the Independent. Uh, so the 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 area that was the b- most affected uh, by the blast. Right, and and the Kataib Party's Secretary General died in the blast. Right. And- when I went to the Hotel Dieu Hospital, I saw Nadim Jmail there with his uh, head bandaged, uh, and he was receiving treatment as well. So uh, they were affected. Their their uh, you know their headquarters is right next to the port. Yeah, and and so you can clearly see that there there is a sense amongst some politicians, at very least, that oh no, we get it. Like this is a collective failure of all of us. We're going to resign. But that, I mean, a few MPs and, you know, one minister doesn't, even a few ministers doesn't really do a whole lot. People want blood. They want revenge. They are absolutely furious uh, that this, what appears to be this just massive collective failure happened amongst the elite that led to this time uh, ticking time bomb that finally exploded. And people are, you know, they're rightfully angry and they're rightfully furious. And the object of their fury is the entire political class. So yeah, that obviously this takes us to yesterday's protests, and and the protests were held under this banner, this this slogan of uh, "hang up," you know, put up the nooses, or or you know, put up the gallows. And so the, immediately you get a sense that people want revenge. Even today, if people are thrown in jail, accountability is not enough. People want blood. They want revenge. And so yesterday, the protests. Uh, began around four, and immediately you sort of had reports of clashes. Uh, security forces were there in massive presence, uh, army, special forces, uh, internal security forces, and uh, parliament police. Can I just jump in here and say that until yesterday, I had kind of felt like the state had collapsed. Like, the state just doesn't exist right now. There's, It's not doing anything. But last night and yesterday showed me, no, the state very much still does you know, exist. Yeah, a hundred percent. The state exists and and is very good at uh, organizing. Uh, you know, around uh, this sort of very security focused uh, idea. And so yesterday, massive security presence at this protest. 
uh, immediately huge amounts of, tar of, uh, of uh, tear gas were fired at protesters who tried to get, get to parliament. Uh, you basically saw, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people amass in Martyrs Square. Uh, and, and it was, uh, you know, basically in a way similar to October 17th. Uh, with sort of this, like, you know, obviously massive outpouring and, and people, uh, you know, people rioting while other people stand by uh, peacefully, uh, you know, on the other side. We had basically four fronts uh, opened with uh, basically between Martyrs Square and, uh, you know, the eastern side of Martyrs Square near the uh, Muhammad al-Amin Mosque uh, behind the, uh, like, Hotel Grey and on the Parliament Street where protesters were trying to basically get to Parliament. Uh, as in any way that they could. And and massive amounts of tear gas were fired. Uh, I've never seen as many people rioting before uh, throughout the protest movements, uh, just really thousands and thousands of people, uh, just the sense among them that, like, we have to do this now, we have to charge over and over. They were charging. Um, it's really, the you know, the, the lack of equipment in terms of gas masks and, and you know, shields for your eyes uh, and the huge amount of tear gas that was used that pushed them back. Um, but also, uh, extremely troublingly, uh, we repeatedly heard live fire. Uh, we, we know now for a fact that uh, shotguns were, uh, you know, the pe people were using shotguns to shoot people. And there are videos uh, showing, uh, you know, uh, people shooting a hand, uh, at least one video showing, showing uh, showing someone shooting a handgun at protesters. Uh, the injury toll from yesterday is a staggering 728 um, between the Red Cross and uh, the Islamic uh, Emergency and Relief uh, Corps uh, who were on the scene. And that gives you a sense of, of, the, of the level of the confrontation. There was also one member of the security forces who died by, uh, by falling uh, from the, in the Hotel Grey. The ISF say or, they, or claim that he was attacked by protesters and that's what caused the fall. Although there are yeah. also reports that uh, he fell as a result of parla the parliamentary guard. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it is unclear. We really only have what the ISF says and other, and other reports. Yeah, I just want to comment on one thing that Timur said that I also observed as well, which is that maybe during the uprising in October, a lot of people were very skeptical of using violence or fighting back basically against police forces and and uh, and the army and whoever is, is suppressing the protests yesterday was very different right i saw people who are like literally non-violence activists breaking rocks you know like and at in order to throw them people like of all sorts of backgrounds charging as timur was saying onto the uh, the security forces because there's a matter of dignity here like why are you killing us more than you already killed us in, in the Beirut, in the port explosion? Like, on what basis is the police and army going down yesterday with all their troops and being so heavy-handed on protesters? Really, what's the basis of that? What's the point? Is it is the point to prevent protesters from reaching Parliament Square? Why? Because they, we might occupy a parliament that is absolutely ineffective and a bunch of, you know, traitors that haven't done anything for the people. Is this like... They're not even using the building. Exactly. They're meeting at UNESCO. Like, not... in order to prevent us from reaching the parliament, they literally shot people in the eye. We have a, at least eight people who have been shot with rubber bullets in the eye yesterday, according to Muhammad Jawad Khalifi, one of, the, one of the former public health ministers who was warning against using... Uh, rubber bullets like randomly the way they are were used yesterday my friend got shot in the neck one of my comrades in Lihaqi got shot in the neck 
and it hit one of his main uh, uh, blood vessels in the neck and he bled so much but miraculously the doctor said he's he's still alive because he, he was able to push on his own wound for for long enough like they were absolutely brutal alive ammunition was shot literally when the army was literally 20 30 meters away from us uh, near riyadh salah it was absolutely insane and the question really is for me for what and my only answer is look from nabih berri's perspective from these big people's perspective what yesterday was about is you know if people reach the parliament for example and occupy the building then you know maybe that's the end of us maybe that's the point where we actually have to step down or we will uh, you know we long no longer have credible rule over the country this is their only worry there's absolutely no worry about safety about public order anything of the sort it's basically just to prevent people from claiming back the country because you know they just completely monopolized power and and uh, and institutions and everything they claim back the country they did in ways i mean they 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 took over the foreign ministry uh, and the economy ministry they raided the environment ministry and the energy ministry uh you know they were pushed out by the end of the night but it's very symbolic i mean taking over four ministries in this country in addition to the association of banks they declared the foreign ministry the heart of the revolution hung up banners um you know imagery that you do see in a, in a, a really in a country in an extreme crisis i mean maybe because we've been living in this you know it's like the frog in the water and if you heat it up slowly you you don't notice <laughs> uh but my god i mean you know that 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 yesterday we were in a situation downtown where i had to duck several times for you know when, when there was someone shooting a shotgun towards us where ministries are are taken over where people are shot uh, where you know people have to go into into surgery because they have a pellet in their heart uh, just the scale of what's happening in this country today and and the rage there i mean one of the one of the moments that stuck out for 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 me the most from the protest yesterday was actually at the beginning when i arrived and spotted the gallows uh, that had been set up in in downtown beirut just a row of gallows you know wood with nooses hung from them and i looked at it and i'm like okay cool like interesting you know imagery symbol i get it and then uh, these guys come out with cardboard cutouts of lebanon's uh, po- you know political class and the first one that i see them put up is the hezbollah leader nasrallah and i just like i think my jaw dropped you know when i when i saw that because it's just something that really uh, months back would have been sort of unimaginable and people were taking pictures with it i saw other people sort of staring at at that wide eyed uh, seeing uh, you know nabih birri michel aoun uh, hariri all of these people hanging from their necks in in martyr square uh, mock execution the you know and and this this woman told me basically like yeah this is this is our message to them uh, they've stolen from us uh, you know and and we didn't do anything the currency is worth 10000 lira uh, dollars worth 10000 lira and we didn't do anything but now they killed us and this is their fate and 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 that that is that is the that is the overarching theme in Beirut today it's revenge yeah i i think the lira is has gotten back to about 7500 now but yeah it's it, it's still way up there from what it was a year ago 1500 obviously but yeah i i think that this this rage is really really it it shows that something big has changed here because during the revolution you know after october 17th you might hear some people mention maybe jokingly ha you know like the only way to get rid of these assholes is to actually kill them because otherwise they're just going to come back but nobody really said that out loud or if they did you know they they weren't really that serious about it now it seems like people are saying this stuff out loud and they and, and at least some of them are somewhat serious about this as well uh, a really big leap 
just in the rhetoric, right? Yeah, and I just want to say here that I, I really think the establishment is so lucky that people can be so patient and so nice. Like, really, uh, when you're in the protest, for example, and you see one or two army uh, guys coming in and, like, exerting or exercising all their macho fantasies by suppressing you and punching you and insulting you, while they are re- literally not protected by their comrades because they're very far away from them, but they know that people won't actually beat the shit out of them, that's really a blessing for them. Like, they can't be luckier. Like, I think with all the rage that exists yesterday, we, sh- we-, we could have had, a, a, you know, a much bigger impact on security forces than we, ha- we did. Really, I mean, just imagine how much can people, t- how much people have been taking without actually doing any sort of harm that is like historically significant. Just destroying shops, this is not nothing. This is absolutely insignificant. It, it's not the same kind of harm that we've been receiving, right? Any harm that we've been inflicting in terms of rioting is nothing compared to what we've been receiving. And I think just the, the ministers, everyone, the MPs, all the politicians are lucky as fuck that they have monopolized well enough violence in Lebanon and uh, among them, among all of their little militias and their little security agencies, but also that people are patient when they see them. Now they're still kicking them out of the street. You know, Saad Hariri tried to go uh, get some, uh, get some, I don't know, do a little PR stunt in, in downtown Beirut. Protesters, uh, not protesters, actually volunteers before the protest, volunteers who were cleaning and distributing food, etc., kicked him out. Another uh, another case, similar case with many uh, many of the politicians. I think this is nothing compared to what could happen. Well, I, I think on the back of the, the comments about how lucky politicians are, you know, maybe it's uh, it's worth pointing out that what we saw yesterday with the way the army was acting in the street, it really, it I mean, it was perhaps the, the most sort of unprovoked attack that I've seen. It, it seems that orders basically came down to the Lebanese army that it was time to clear the streets. Um, and so they attacked protesters uh, just outright, uh, women, uh, you know, men uh, indiscriminately. Uh, you know, they, they beat uh, Ayam Arzoub, my partner, uh, you know, they, they punched her in the face um, and threw her phone away. Another soldier hit me in the face with a stick uh, and then tried to take my phone. This is obviously not about us, but it's just an example of the kind of, of the way they were acting. And they were running through the streets, uh, seeming super empowered, um, you know, swinging rifles at people uh, and, and humiliating people, cursing at people uh, with absolute impunity. And uh, I, I think that th- there's a question here of, you know, historically the army in Lebanon during the Civil War uh, example uh, in, in other sort of troubles, the 58, uh, you know, events, 1958 events. Uh, try to like balance, you know, how they stay in between the various sides. Uh, and I feel that it, we're, we're sort of in a phase now like that in Lebanon um, because the people are absolutely fed up. They, you know, the politicians are pariahs uh, to their own people. And I think that the army uh, sort of has to weigh its role here because uh, what it did last night uh, seems to have been uh, protecting the political class uh, and their interests. Uh, above the interests of the people who were protesting, uh, you know, just an, an unspeakable event. And and so, uh, you know, obviously the army is, is, you know, relies on international funding. So it'll be interesting to see the extent to which uh, the army uh, falls in line with this political class as it as it is in, in what seems like, uh, you know, more of an existential crisis than it has ever been before. 
Yeah, I just want to, like, um, based on your comments, Timur, I just want to say one thing about the Army Security Forces, which is that, you know, they have no more excuses. I'm talking about them individually, as people, as human beings. They have no more. There are no excuses for why they would be doing what they did yesterday. They got orders. They can reject them. What would happen? They would fire all of them? No. This doesn't happen. They can have disobedience inside security forces. It has happened many times in history and can happen today. This is the historical moment for this to happen. And another point of shame that we should focus at is that, that on the public prosecutor. Yesterday, uh, a very nasty tactic was used, one that dates back to 2015 and I think 2011 before it, which is forcing detainees, you know, people who are detained during protests, protests to undergo urine drug tests. For absolutely no reason, there's no linkage between what they're, what's happening in the streets and people like smoking weed. But still, the public prosecutor, Judge Ghassan Awaidat, had the, the, I don't know, on what basis, ordered the, the urine drug test to be done on people. And, you know, this to me is just, you know, like it shows you that this establishment, be the judiciary, the security forces, the politicians... They're not learning anything because they don't really have to. They haven't had the, the, the they haven't been forced to learn from what's happening from their mistakes. They haven't been forced to compromise in a real way. Uh, not to under not I'm not saying this to understate the the power of people protesting and their collective power, but I'm stating this because this is the most stubborn establishment and it's a criminal establishment, especially what after what we've seen in in Port Explosion and what we've seen in the protests. This is a criminal establishment that is very stubborn and seems so far not to be worrying about, you know, each of them doesn't seem to be too worried about their position and their role and their power. And this is what should change in the new future. Yeah, and I think another important thing uh, for us to recognize is we're we're talking about popular anger, and that that I think really really does exist. Um, it, it certainly exists in the communities that were decimated by this. I nobody in Beirut was unaffected by this as well. I think it exists very broadly across Lebanon, but there are there's still politics involved here, right? Uh, and so I, I think we can't look at the protesters or the people as this monolith, especially when we see what happened at the foreign ministry, especially yesterday. Uh, you know, we had protesters go in. Uh, there were several retired Brigadier generals who went in. They took over the foreign ministry. Uh, and like Tamor, you said, uh, declared it the you know capital of the revolution. Originally, when they first did that, they had a couple of banners that I, I saw. And one of those banners out in front of the ministry was something like uh, Beirut is the city of no weapons or something like that. A pretty obvious reference to Hezbollah and its weapons. Basically, you know, saying that, oh, this revolution is also against Hezbollah, which I don't think that that's shared by everyone by any means. They they also, by the way, took that poster down and replaced it with another one later that evening. It's long been a point of contention and probably will continue to be. But I think that this, uh, I, what I felt at least yesterday on the ground was maybe uh, as well the biggest sort of, uh, you know, popular uh, uproar against Hezbollah, except for maybe the, those few early days of the protests in October when everyone was fair game and everyone seemed to be on the same level. And if I can just add a note here on a personal level yesterday, I, I got home and I realized that despite like the crazy events of the day and, and, and everything that went on, I felt extremely calm. And I think that it's because 
for almost the, the whole year, uh, protests have been normality. Uh, they've basically become normal. Uh, and over the last, you know, couple days or several days, we've been thrown into this just complete chaos. And I think that being in the streets yesterday with all these people uh, kind of just felt normal, uh, oddly. It was back to the normal abnormal uh, that we've been living. And, and yeah, I just, uh, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, um, when it comes to the Hezbollah issue, uh, the, I have a lot of conflicting uh, feelings about it because, first of all, we know for sure that Hezbollah is one of the main obstacles for change in Lebanon because it's uh, when it when, when when you go beyond the politics, when it's about you know uh, who can force things to happen on the ground, Hezbollah is the strongest uh, political actor in the country, and it was clear in October 17 uprising and today that Hezbollah is basically one of the most counter-revolutionary. Act, political actors in Lebanon, and it claimed the role of protecting the establishment from revolution. So that's on one end. So in that sense, Hezbollah is actually uh, one of the main opponents of the revolution. And I would say, like, the revolution cannot be a revolution without targeting or without, you know, being against Hezbollah as a political actor. And on the other hand, um, there is a problem with uh, focusing so much of the discourse against Hezbollah because there is this among especially among Hezbollah supporters and people who are sympathized like Hezbollah sympathizers, there's a lot of like these conspiracy ideas that you know the 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 what's happening on the ground and what's hap- like people revolting is actually an international conspiracy against Hezbollah by the West and the Gulf and I don't know who. So they are always analyzing whatever people are doing in the streets if Hezbollah's people or supporters. Hezbollah are not uh, down in the in the streets with the protesters. They're always, you know, analyzing that this is a conspiracy and that is a conspiracy, etc. And there is this real alienation of a lot of Hezbollah supporters or sympathizers from the revolution. And and it, I mean, you can't say you can't deny that it's almost impossible to have like a revolution across the country if you have a huge section of the population uh, that is not part of it. And I'm not talking about Shia, Shia people. I'm saying, talking specifically about people who are uh, sympathizers to Hezbollah but are not partisans. So, which are the biggest, like, I think the largest majority of Hezbollah supporters, people who are not ideological, maybe, they are not uh, organized, but they like Nasrallah, they appreciate uh, the resistance so much, etc. So, they have a lot of sympathy for Hezbollah and um, it's like an emotional connection with Hezbollah. And also they are worried that the, on the regional political level, Hezbollah is actually the only actor that can protect them. So there are so many you know, factors that go in there. And it's really sad to see this alienation happening because it's there. And the amount of propaganda that we saw yesterday against protesters, I mean, these are the same people who were cleaning the streets, right? They came with their mops and, and things like that. And they went to, to, to Martyr Square and uh, protested there. These are not some aliens sent by the special tribunal for Lebanon to do, I don't know what, to Hezbollah. It's absolutely insane. And still you saw all of this propaganda. Right. And they're not, they're not all on drugs either. You know, that, that's they're not all on drugs. Exactly. Uh, uh, so uh, it's, it's really shameful to see like so much propaganda, but you understand it politically. Hezbollah needs this to, uh, to not be a popular uprising and not be portrayed as such because otherwise the whole establishment is in danger, including uh, the well, party. Itself. That's what everybody needs. Hariri needs this Basile Aoun, uh, Jumblat, Berri 
I mean, as of right now, the anger is so deep. And I don't think that yesterday just poof, you know, the security forces cleared out Martyr Square and retook the foreign ministry. So everything's fine now. No, no. Like people are fucking angry. And this is not something that's just going to go away. I mean, we're still cleaning up. You know, people are still recovering bodies. This is something that uh, I, I think very much threatens everyone in power, all of those top players. Yeah, totally. And um, concerning yesterday's protest, a lot of people are thinking, are asking whether, you know, this can be a new wave of revolution or uprising or just one moment. It's very difficult to say now because no one expected so many people to be in the streets yesterday. In my opinion, like, I expected maybe 10 or 20,000 people, but the numbers were absolutely insane. Like the biggest numbers I've seen since the peak of, of the October uprising. So it's difficult to say and to predict what people spontaneously do and when they decide to take the streets and for what reason. But um, it's definitely like uh, satisfying to see that, you know, with the the, the reaction to the, to the, the explosion, which is, not an accident. You can call it an accident, but it's really a crime because of the because it's negligence and corruption that caused it. It's not like some natural disaster, yeah. right? Uh, uh, that the, the, the reaction is not only cynicism and uh, hopelessness and desperation is, in my opinion, great. The channel. I think a lot of people yesterday were bringing in their traumas from the experience that they had into the into the streets. Many people mentioned to me how every time a gun was shot by police forces. They were scared as fuck because they they they, they it triggered the trauma that they had experienced during the explosion, but the, to be channeling this anger and this energy into cleaning and and helping and distributing food in the morning and and all of this amazing solidarity initiatives that have been happening, and afternoon and protesting against the establishment and being so uncompromising in our demands and in our rights, etc. I think it's absolutely amazing. And I'm really like just proud of all of these people who took to the streets yesterday and who have been doing so much for for others in the last few days. I agree. I think that people have been given purpose again, uh, although it's uh, horrific circumstances. But over the past uh, months, it's just been the situation of just impending doom. People are completely downtrodden, uh, feel completely uh, out of, uh, you know, unable to control their destinies. But what we've seen in the past week is people take their futures back into their own hands and and the aid workers of the day become the protesters in the evening and, and at night um and and you know the, these are uh, you know what you know there's there's all of this bullshit about resilience and uh, you know which um, which uh, i'm very happy is being debunked uh, recently but this is the the, the spirit of a people uh, who really uh, refuse to die uh, and and to give up and and this has uh, given purpose again and the purpose is to help each other to rebuild the city and to uh, hold accountable those who did this to this this city and this country and on that note i think we have to leave it there uh, there's so much stuff going on obviously we will be following this and the fallout from this uh, in the weeks and years ahead but i think for now Taymor, uh we have to let you get back your the number one news source for a lot of people on Twitter and at Al Jazeera. So we should let you get back to work. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you as always. Of course. And and I think, uh, I mean, just to end by, by offering our condolences to all of the victims, uh, all of those injured, all of the families who still have someone missing, all of the people who 
who have been been made homeless uh, by by this uh, in, incredible event. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much, Timur, for coming. Really, and uh, I mean, this is the second time we 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 do one of those like historically significant episodes with you. First time was you know that big episode on 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 the first day of the uprising, and now this one. So, and thanks really for all the work you've been doing for a lot of people, uh, including. Yeah. You've been uh, an amazing reporter during this time, following all the details, etc. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Let's hope that the next big episode we do is an episode where we talk about how the people responsible for this have finally been held accountable. On that note, that's the end of the episode. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back hopefully next week, depending on the circumstances, with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Taymour Azhari. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.